0: Onion is Australia's most exciting and best-known opera conductor. He has been described as exceptionally brilliant, dynamic and fabulous. After study abroad, he returned to Opera Australia in 1994 and was awarded the prestigious Churchill Fellowship to study conducting in Europe. He has worked at New York's Metropolitan Opera and the Rossini Festival in Italy has been Artistic Director of Canterbury Opera in New Zealand and continues a long association with Opera Australia. Stages chatted to Brian as he prepared for his seventh opera on the harbour, Puccini's La Boheme.
1: Uh, They look good and they sound great, which is really good. And they've come very nicely prepared. And on the first day, we, I just had a full day of ensemble calls. You know, so, so I, they just had me, a pianist, and uh, we went through the score and we worked out what we were going to do. I, I'm a collaborator, um, as opposed to other people who just, you know, other co- conductors say, you do it this way. Which, you know, it's OK. But I would rather hear what... That person has and what they're going to bring to the role. Yeah? Um, it's like the opposite from a Cam Mac show where you can go and see uh, Phantom anywhere in the world and it's exactly the same. You know, and people don't care who's in it, they just see the show. I want to see the individual performers. I'm old fashioned. So, so this is La Bohème. La Bohème, Puccini. Which, which I believe is the, the seventh opera on seventh the harbour? Seventh harbour opera.
0: So this is um, introduced by Lyndon, was it, when you first arrived? Was it Lyndon's yes. idea concept? Absolutely. And it's grown into one of the most highly anticipated uh, cultural events on the calendar.
1: Yeah, from the get-go, it was the most important um, international-focused festival in the world, from the get-go. But it's developed into this big thing, and so at least half the audience um, come from overseas.
0: It. So what, what were the um, expect, expectations in the early days?
1: Did you think that you'd be here seven years later? Uh, well, we, we knew that we were going to be there at least three years because Dr. Handa, who is the Japanese philanthropist, who gives $12 million a year, um, he he gives the funding in three-year lots. So we, we have the first three years and then the next, and then this is the start of the next Try, try whatever it is. Try a year. <laughs> <laughs> we've um, so we've seen some of the, the greatest operas. Uh, they're really, always they're like, like, from, from the top ten, right? Yeah, but mind you, there's a reason why they're the greatest operas, and I'm lucky to have those masterpieces to work on with really, you know, fantastic singers and brilliant orchestra. So the top ten because they're accessible.
0: Uh, absolutely,
1: and there has to be a reason why we, you know, there has to be something uh, publicity-wise to get audiences there. If you, you know, there are wonderful, absolutely brilliant pieces uh, that I love doing, but audiences wouldn't come to see them because they don't know them. Mm. And you, of course, you perform rain, hail, or shine.
0: Yeah. What, does, what do you think the experience offers to an audience who, who come along? I, I guess you get a lot of... You know, you said there's a lot of people who come from overseas to see it. But I guess there's a lot of people who are seeing opera
1: for the very first time. Well, that's the is exciting that? thing. And that's, that's... For me, that's the best thing about it, that we get a real reaction from the audience. If something is good, they'll cheer. You don't do that in a, in a normal opera house, in a theatre. And most of the... Well, at least half the audience... Have never even driven past a theatre, let alone an opera house, and they've never come to see an opera. And so it's our job to make this the most wonderful experience for them. I think to encourage them to come and see an opera in the opera house with with a curtain and you know walls, as opposed to um, being at, at the beck and call of the the weather, the wind, the rain. But if it absolutely pours down and we have to pause for 10 minutes uh, during the performance, the orchestra, you know, put on their ponchos or put up little umbrellas, but they give us standing ovations. And when we stop, they cheer. And then, you know, this stage people come out and they mop the stage down so no one slips. And um, when we start up again, they cheer again because they know that it's something really special. And they won't ever see that anywhere else.
0: Yeah, and it is very special. I've, I've been fortunate to see it for the seven years. Mm-hmm. And um, on that, that beautiful setting on the harbour with the opera house in the background and being able to dine and drink al fresco, and uh, it, it, it's a magical night, mm. yeah. So, um, astounded by the brilliance of the productions, what, what are the conditions like for, for, say, you and the orchestra? I mean, are you, under, you seem to be underwater.
1: No, we're not on water. We're actually on top of the water. And when we started, uh, look, it's grown into being better the conditions. But when we started, the orchestra pit, which is literally underneath the stage, you know, we can hear the singers walking on top of us. Um, there, there, there were sort of wooden, you know, railings on, you know, on the uh, planks, and and you could see actually there were you know um, little cracks. In the in the floor, and I could see the you know during the day rehearsals I could see the water underneath sort of, and then um, with at night at ten o'clock um, with the tide rising you could hear shoop, 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 <laughs> against shoo, and um, sometimes the floor would get wet, but orchestra players are very particular animals that they don't play in bad conditions. The Orchestra pit, even though it may look terrible, is perfectly air conditioned because um, there are, and there's absolutely no leaks, no water whatsoever. Because those instruments are really expensive, you know. We've had um, the concert master had like a one point five million dollar violin. So if if uh, the, the conditions, the heat or the cold, is going to tamper with that instrument, they're not going to play. And even when we come out for the bows, which was my idea, you know, because you know everyone comes out in the chorus, then the principals, and then I get the mix, you know, the people who actually make the the show happen. They come out for a bow, and then the full orchestra come out. But because it's on a raked stage, you know, on a slant, for those people who don't know what a rake is, um, and it can be slightly sprinkling, sometimes raining, they can't take their their real instruments out, so they have fake instruments that they that they come props. Up. Did you know that? Yeah, fantastic. And so, yeah, they're like prop instruments. They're sort of old ones. They might be a violin with two strings on it or a clarinet without the mouthpiece. And as they go up, they're just given an instrument, whether they play it or not. (laughs) So the audience know that that, there's a real uh, orchestra there as opposed to just a pre-recorded thing that some people would think because it's brilliant sound. Mm. So you think that can't be a real orchestra underneath
0: there, but it is. I've always been curious. Do do musicians own their instruments? I mean, a $1.5 million violin.
1: Well, most people own their instruments, but in cases like that, uh, sometimes there are wealthy benefactors who just happen to have bought uh, an Armani or a Stradivarius, you know, $5 million, and they loan it to the performer. And I think people like Richard Tognetti and things uh, with the Brandenburg uh, Chamber Orchestra, they... Use instruments that are on permanent loan to them. What? And that's why it's bad when you read in the press or on social media that a violinist or a cellist has um, been you know, on a flight and when they get their cello back, it's been smashed. Well, well it's because it's not their cello. Mm, mm. And it's like five million dollars probably uninsured.
0: Oh dear. Um, you talk about the beautiful sound. Is it a challenge to get the uh, the sound right, being out in the open air and not for us? Dropping? Because the
1: orchestra, look, the orchestra is fantastic. They are the guys who make me look good. Uh, but the sound designer and sound technician Tony David Cray is literally from heaven, he's from God. and he makes he makes the sound fantastic. Um, he has a huge console thing, and you know the singers have earpieces. You know, and he they, they're individually mic'd, As are all the instruments in the orchestra. And there's like 75-piece orchestra. They're all individually mic'd and he just you know, does whatever creation, create, creative things on it. And there are, I think it's 280 or something speakers underneath this where they wouldn't sit. Um, and then there are speakers on stage as well and somehow he makes it sound fantastic, like a studio recording. Can, uh, can the
0: open air play Havoc with the voice? I mean, do, do the singers experience uh,
1: any difficulties? Like swallowing insects. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we had that a couple of years ago. We were doing Carter and I in the second act sort of duet Thing. Just before the, the flower song from the tenor, I heard this spri- mezzo soprano sort of singing, and a fly had got up her nose and sort of started buzzing, and she couldn't get it out. And anyway, then she eventually swallowed it. Uh, yeah, but a, a lot of old singers, sort of celebrity singers, for years refused to sing in the open air because it dried out the, vocal, the voice, you know. But look, he, these days, you perform where you're being paid. yeah. Yeah. You're contracted, that's it, full stop. I'll do it. Because if I don't do it, I'll get someone else.
0: Right. Well, we look forward to seeing uh, La Wim, um and, uh, and, what, and it's, what's it's, in the future.
1: Yeah, it sounds like a really interesting production.
0: The, the director
1: has got some really interesting ideas,
0: which is good. So that's what's happening now. Let's yeah. go back to then. Um, You've described yourself as a country boy from Cessnock who fell in love with opera at four years old. Who said that? I read it about you. I think it might have been in the uh, Vale Times or the Southern Harlem (laughs) Daily. Does that sound right? I mean, because you did grow up in Cessnock, a country boy. Yeah. I never grew up, but I was born there, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, And so falling in love with opera at four years old, how, how does that happen?
1: Well, my mother was basically deaf. She was hearing impaired. She had about five percent hearing in one ear. That was it. Uh, And soon after I was born, some old person died, and they left her the hearing the hearing aid in their you know in their will. And my mother never knew that she was deaf. But this person who died anyway. So my mother started wearing this hearing aid. You know, you, these days you just go to a hearing specialist and they, you know, do the tests and things. No, that is, you just put this one in her ear and you know she could hear through that. But she was Scottish. Uh, my father was English, but um, my mother was a dressmaker, and I was very close to her. And she always played recordings of a, an old Scottish tenor, who I still absolutely adore. Uh, called Kenneth McKellar, and she would play these LPs uh, records, uh, and I would list that, so that was that was uh, my first language as well as speaking. And then I don't know how I got interested in Jeanette MacDonald. You know of Jeanette MacDonald, Bel uh, MGM m- movie uh, in- Indian fame, love mm-hmm. Indian Love Song, Call, Call, big yeah, um, Rosemary, but. Um, that sort of uh, from the mid-30s, they, they were making those films. But I loved her as well. And I was, when I was seven years old, I was the youngest member of the Jeanette MacDonald International Fan Club, which is something I don't really tell many people. Um, but I remember just before I was four, I bought my first record, an LP, and it was Act Three and Act Four of Puccini's Boheme. Is that weird? Wow! I just no, regret, 19, this is now 19, 1938. Recording with Gigli and Albanese, and Afropoli, and um, I remember putting it on the record player and listening. And da 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 da, da was Act Three. You know, because in those days you could buy just that one record, and then you'd, you'd buy Act One and Two some other time, which I did eventually. And to this day, when I start Act uh, Four, especially Act Four, I should say. I hear that, and I think at the time when I, the, the needle first went on that record. And I did had no idea what it was, but I loved it. And I used to sort of do parrot fashion words, no idea what they were, like a couple of things I know. And, um, yeah, so that, that was the start of my record collecting, and every week I would buy at least one record, and then my mother would just, you know, just say whatever records I wanted I, I would buy then I that was the start of a of the tip of the iceberg of a massive collection.
0: Uh was it a musical family? No, not at all. No, one no, no aunts or uncles or
1: No. No. My grandfather played bagpipes in Scotland. a pipe band in Scotland, but he never played them here and um I still have his chanter which is the practice you know, it's like it's like the the, the end of the and it's bagpipes. It's got the, the big circle on the end. the, the, no, the chanter, I mean, yeah, for the bagpipes. Yeah, 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 and they just put a normal top Rean on it, you know, it, yeah. so it's just it looks like a big piece of licorice. Um, anyway, but I I have that, but no, there was no musical person in our family, and no one could really sing or no one did. Just my mother listened to this. Well, what she could hear of it of Kenneth McKellar singing Scottish songs. Uh, now, you play the piano. Do you play any other instruments? Yeah, I used to, but I learnt piano... First? Yes, it's in my book. You know that story, about No, no. Just after my parents were married in 1942. Um... Someone said to them, "Oh, we've got this piano. You know, would you like it?" Well, yeah, fine. So it was delivered by the removalists, and unbeknownst to my mother and my father, the removalists dropped it off the back of the of the truck, and then just carried it in. They said, "We've got a bit of junk here." <laughs> anyway, so they didn't know because they never played it, and it sat in the living room um, of the family home for. A thousand years and then suddenly just before I was four just before I, well just when I bought this first record of Act 3 and Act, Act 4 of Love um I said to my mother having not even opened the lid of the piano, I'd like to learn how to play the piano. So she found some sort of teenage girl a couple of blocks away who charged 40 cents an hour, oh half hour lesson and I had a couple of weeks of lessons. I said, well, I don't know how, exactly how long. It wouldn't have been many more than two or three months. And then I decided that she wasn't giving me enough. So I went to another piano teacher in Cessnock, an old lady, who was fantastic. And she gave me a fantastic technique. I don't have it anymore. But I was really good. And I, I did all my exams and I sound like, you know, big-headed now. But I, look, I recorded most of the Mozart Um, sonatas and many of the Beethoven sonatas for the Newcastle ABC by the time I was 14 Um, anyway yeah so I don't know what it was, they they must have thought I was a Martian (laughs) Um, Who was your piano teacher do you remember her name? Of course I do Uh, Mrs Dietz Ina Dietz, Alexandrina but it was Ina Dietz and I had we had to pay. It was three dollars an hour, a three dollars a lesson, and so you had to pay in terms of ten weeks. It was thirty dollars, which was a lot of money for my parents because my father was a coal miner, and my mother was a dressmaker. But they had basically no money on this old piano, and after a couple of years or something, they bought a pianola for me, which was uh, cost a hundred dollars, which was a lot then, and um, I had that all my life until my my hideous brother decided he was going to make it into a cocktail cabinet.
0: Oh, no.
1: End of story, that story. <laughs> um, but were I, you able to buy piano rolls and hear... Yeah.
0: ..the recordings yeah, of, I used um, of your famous oh, pianist? No, 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 no. No, no, um, no, I
1: never did that. that, that they play a piano. Player pianos, player pianos yeah. right. rolls are just sort of, you know, you, you know whirl out the barrel, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> While and, you pumped uh, it. Yeah, yeah, as they say. And, um, um, yeah, so it was... Thirty dollars for ten hour lessons, but f- for each of those, which was supposed to be one hour a week, but each week she gave me three two and a half hour lessons. This lady, um, and my lessons were at six thirty in the morning, I think, or six. It must have been six because uh, they were two and a half hours, or an hour and a half. No, two and a half hours. Monday morning, Thursday morning, and Saturday morning. So I had. Seven and a half hours, I can't count. Yeah, seven and a half hours a week for ten dollars, and then I go to school. Then I come home and practice, and uh, she would she would have a cup of tea and her breakfast whilst giving me my my piano lesson. Well,
0: it sounds like you're a pretty committed, dedicated student. Yeah,
1: yeah. and look, she was. She was dedicated to me as well,
0: and I suppose know. she sees the enthusiasm. She must in have a pupil, yeah. so mm. she wants to encourage that. Was there much of a, uh, an
1: education in music at school? No, no, not at all. Right. But I did in primary school. I had a school teacher for year five and six in primary. My last two years in primary school, who was an opera fan, and she encouraged. Uh, my listening in fact I think I encouraged hers because I had a much bigger collection than her and um, I would at, at school she, she used to play things of UC Burling and whatever to the class and of course they hated it you know they, and um, we're talking the late 1990s here you know anyway slight joke there um, <laughs> and um, so whenever um, we'd be doing something uh, I'd of course finish really quickly and so she'd put on a record of, you know, it was frequently UC Birling that she played, a Swedish tenor, and uh, all the rest of the class were still trying to finish their things and there'd be, this music happening? Anyway, yeah, so she, she did encourage it. Right. And then when I left primary school, I kept in contact with her. And, um, you know, every time I bought a new record, I would ring her and tell her what it was and blah, 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 you know. Yeah. I had to tell someone, yeah, because no well, one
0: else in Cessna <laughs> even can. Well, that's it. Growing up in a, in a rural town, you know, in Cessna, um, how do you find outlets to, to see and to hear and to do? You obviously had a record collection, but what about um, seeing live performance? Were there recitals that <laughs>
1: no, the town no. or, or anything? <laughs> I, I remember the, the Australian Ballet, I presume it was Australian Ballet, came to the Cisnock Town Hall, which no longer exists. And I used to go and practice there uh, on the way home from school because it was the only grand piano in in the town. And um, they opened the town hall for me, so I'd go and practice. And um, the Australian Ballet came, and it was just terrible. But then I did go and see. The first show I ever saw was this Cisnock music, Gilbert and Sullivan Players, or something it was called, um, of Patience, and my kindergarten teacher was Lady Angela in it? Oh. Yeah. Uh, which was cute. And I'm, my mother took me to that. I don't know why. I must have asked. And then soon after that, when I was six, I think, uh, I went with the Cessnock Pensioners Club on a bus to see No No Nanette in Sydney, which was the first professional show I'd ever seen, starring Yvonne DiCarlo and someone who became my future wife. That's, you know?
0: that's amazing. I know. That's fantastic.
1: I know. But I remember her in it. She had a big curl in front of her
0: head. I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages. Don't forget to investigate other Stages podcasts featuring conversations with creatives and artists about their careers, processes and what matters to them. Leading lady of the Australian stage, Geraldine Turner, reflects on the challenge and responsibility of leading a company, often on a long tour.
2: And There have been times in my life when I haven't come up to the um the place I should be in in leading the company. I've always led the company, but you know I've been a brat sometimes too, and oh, you know
0: as far as my as private life. by example. Or...
2: Yeah, my private life has taken over, and I've been you know quite mad, but but at times. But that's still, a,
0: a mature, Is that earlier in your career? Well, I that's suppose maturity so. I'm, I'm thinking, certainly not it?
2: that now. I'm not that person <laughs> now, but um yeah um, I think I've always had that ability to. Lead a company, and I don't even know what that is, what the definition of that is. But I think I do have that, and I, I'm very much aware. I'm very inclusive, and want everyone in the cast to be great. And I'm not one of those people who. I'm the leading person, and I don't care about anyone else. And I'm not giving you a moment. You know, I can't stand those sorts of performances But was that good
0: tertiary? training i mean
1: that's okay but but uh, look as you probably n- know in in the arts no matter what sort of studies you do it doesn't really put you instead for your job uh at the concern, a lot of it's learning
0: on the job isn't it absolutely serving in an apprenticeship well in life yeah, uh,
1: yeah. it's like that uh yeah, um, I went to Newcastle Conservatorium and I, I did a um, performance degree and blah, 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 blah. And then the day after I graduated from the con and the university at the same time, because um, I think for an extra three hours a week or something I could do a dip in ed, which is a, some sort of school teaching thing. Yep, and, yep. You know, so I did that at the same time. And um, the day after I finished that, I started work at Opera Australia. Uh, and I had absolutely no idea about what being a re- repetitive was and, you know, I could play everything but I had never had to follow a conductor before.
0: So how did you get a job at Opera Australia? Was it one advertised or because you were a, a um, an impressive graduate from the Conservatorium? You... Oh, no, I had
1: written to them. You'd written to them, right. I'd written to them... Um, well beforehand, and saying you know who I was and what I was doing, and and I had been conducting the Newcastle Gilbert and Sullivan Society, and I'd done Guys and Dolls and Showboat for the Nervacastrian you know, players or whatever it was. <laughs> you, you could imagine what it sounded like. And um, did you have aspirations to be a conductor no, at that time?
0: No, no, you're quite not happy being a repetitor and
1: well, I was just I just wanted it. to be around singers, yep. and um, and you know. Cre- you know, creating the music that I liked. And um, yeah, so I wrote to them and then I, I did an audition for them. And literally the day after I think graduated, um, I started with them. It was like casual, I think. And for, after a couple of weeks, they sent me a letter offering me trainee repetitor scholarship yeah, you know, obviously someone given money or something, and so they they say, well, you you know, you have the naming rights on this young guy or something. So um, yeah, and I was I was trainee, well, we're, we're trainee even now after however many years, but I was a trainee repetitor for six months or something, then I just went on to staff there. I've basically been resident with Opera Australia since then. You got the Churchill. Fellowship in '94, which took
0: you to Europe, yeah. is that where you were able to develop your skills, skills as a conductor? Was well, that supp- there, or what did you what did you do in Europe with the? Supposedly, it was because
1: it all started um, because when I I was with Opera Australia, and uh, and then in somewhere in 1980 '89, early '89, they obviously thought that it was time that i my mind was expanded and my you know aspirations uh, w- would encompass more than just playing piano and because in this industry as you well know it's like a big family and you can have a lovely time but it's actually not that you know it's it's really hard work and in the end no one really cares about each other. A couple of people do, but not not really. Um, and I was just in this magical world. It was like being in a lovely, lovely garden, and all these flowers around. And you know, it was it was funny, and there were lovely people, and whatever. But it's like being in a snake pit, actually. Yes, As, because of the the competitive aspect, people are all after the job. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and, and, and,
0: and people, and the ego of performers. It's all about egos. They
1: want to prove that they're better than you. you that's, that's like ju- absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. So um, the person who was uh, my boss at the time uh, didn't renew my contract, which made me have to go away. Unfortunately, there was um, a conductor, a visiting conductor who was running, he was music director of Lyric Opera of Queensland as it was at the time and he was my first mentor and he was brilliant the, the greatest coach I've ever known who was he? John Matheson right. um, a New Zealander but he was quite, still quite good um, but he, <laughs> he left New Zealand very early and went to the UK and um, like prompted Maria Callas's Traviatis at Covent Garden and in and he was a very famous coach coached literally everyone uh, one of the worst conductors I've ever known. Really? But an absolutely brilliant coach. In what regard? What did, he, what did he teach you? How did he mentor you? Well, he was really big on language, about open and closed vowels in French and Italian and whatever. And um, because he said when he left New Zealand, he spoke English. He went to the UK and he went, he was basically on staff, a staff conductor at Covent Garden. He was one of the ones who was one of the coaches of Joan Sutherland when she did her first Luchias. In fact, he uh, conducted many of them. He conducted her um, the second run of the Carmelites the year before, which was, you know... But when one of his first things was to prompt Maria Callas as Traviata. And he told me that uh, he decided he would learn the language and he wanted to know He wanted to know precisely every aspect of each word in Traviata. And he was really pedantic. And his coachings with other languages, with certainly open and closed vowels, you know what they are, Um, and he would make you exaggerate them when you were coaching so that when you sang, they opened slightly and whatever, and it sounded right. And he would... Uh, He was a master of languages, uh, and he would uh, coach things like Rosenkavalier. And Rosenkavalier is is a famous, you know, Richard Strauss piece, hideously boring in uh, being Mac three. But uh, there's one role in it, uh, Baron Ox who sings with various Austrian accents, and he knew all of them. So people from around the world would come in and coach it with him. Of he knew this guy from New Zealand. Wow. Anyway, um, he really was brilliant. Anyway, he said, look, um, uh, I hear, you know, you've got some time off. Come up to Queensland and, you know, and work with me. So I did. And the good thing was that Opera Australia really nurtured me. And even though they didn't renew my contract for the next six months or something, I was back there. After, I think, eight months, I was back there for two months, and then I went to Melbourne to work for Victoria State Opera for 10 months, came back to Opera Australia for two months, then up to Queensland as Head of Music uh, for, for three years but I was there for either nine or 10 months and always back at Opera Australia. So I always kept my foot in the door. Yeah. They gave me that opportunity. Then when I finished my three years for, with Opera que- Lyric Opera of Queensland, I came back to Opera Australia on a much higher level. You know, um, And I'd learnt a lot. But part of the deal when I got the job in Queensland, uh, head of music was that I conducted the final two performances of each production. Do you remember your first conducting gig? Of course I do. What was it? It was Faust of Gounod, And I, I I went in, and it was the same cast, as you know. Um, we also did school's performances, which was a cut-down version of, of each thing. But the Faust, at interval, the concertmaster came in, and he said, look, Brian, look, it's great. I really never conducted before. I conducted, you, you know, The Music Man and Showboat and blah 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 and Guys and Dolls, but uh, I had no technique. And he said, "But you realise that your three four go- goes the wrong way." <laughs> 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 and he said, "But look, you know, we could read what you were doing because you know it, it was so musical, blah 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 blah." And so I applied for a Churchill Fellowship. This is a long way around getting to yeah, the getting answer. Back to clear and um, Part of my study plan was to go to Amsterdam, I think. I can't remember where else it was that I... It was in my plan. I didn't do any of that, uh, to study operatic conducting. And I, you know, I got the interview, and I knew as I was doing the interview that I got it. And in the end, uh, I don't know, there were like 20 people who got... Fellowships that year, and I got half the national funding. I got $150,000 to spend 18 months away. I went to San Diego uh, and assisted um, a a conductor on a production of La Sonambola, which was really just, you know, it was my first time away. Um, And then I went to New York, worked at the Met, and then to Venice with my main guru. Who was, who is? Randolph Michelson, right. died two years ago, right. but he was he was the greatest person I've ever met in my life.
0: Um, is it daunting um, to, to face an
1: orchestra that you don't know? It's, it's always scary. It's almost as scary for me to do an orchestral reading with an orchestra I know and have worked with many times to do a completely new orchestra, because orchestras judge you whether they like you or respect you, and it's better that an orchestra respects you than like you. You know, luckily I'm able to get sort of have balance. They sort of they like me. They think I'm sort of you know sort of funny and humorous and blah blah blah. blah but they respect me. That's the main thing. Uh, because if a, if an orchestra only likes you, they will just they think they can get away with anything, yeah. but if they respect you, they say. But working with colleagues is scarier, I think, than meeting a new um, a new orchestra. Although last Friday, I was I, it was my last day uh, on a production on a, like the fifty seventh revival of Carmen, uh, and I was to be conducting. The, the run, but when when I when I looked at the contract, the final Carmen uh, was also opening out of Boheme on the harbour, so I had to you know um, be taken out of that. So I was down to play rehearsals for it for you know the show that I was supposed to be conducting. So I was down at the opera. I left home at, at quarter past seven, I think, and it was an eleven o'clock rehearsal. I was supposed to play from eleven o'clock to six. I was wearing my reading glasses and sort of not too well dressed. Um, I was sitting in the green room of the opera house, and the phone rang. and They said it was a company um, manager, and said, "Where are you at Opera House?" He said, "They've got twenty minutes to get up to the Opera Center, which is ten minutes drive, to take to do the one orchestral reading for Traviata." I haven't told you this. No. One orchestra reading for Traviata because the conductor was in emergency at the hospital and you may have to do the zitzprobe that afternoon. Now, I, I'm not even on Traviata. I haven't done Traviata for seven years. I didn't have a score. didn't have nothing. I didn't have my my glasses with a, that distance on it. And so I just... They, they gave me a, um, a cab voucher. That's how good they were. I went up. To the Opera Centre, and when I walked in, yeah, you know, the orchestra was waiting there for me. had Had I not done it, it would have cost tens of thousands of dollars of wasted money, and then they wouldn't have had that one rehearsal of the or- to get the orchestra together before they did the zuzpizprob, which is where the orchestra and the singers get together. And I hadn't worked on it. I didn't know what tempi, what speed the singers or the conductor had been working on with the singers. Ah, and I went in and there was, sorry, uh, the library had put Chilario's score, an old famous um, conductor, and one of his batons, and that's sort of sacred to me because he was one of my idols. and I worked with him quite a lot, but he was old school and, you know, I loved him. Um, I walked in, conducted it, you know, and stopped and started, whatever. It was a reading and then we had an hour's break and they still didn't tell me when the conductor was coming back. Tim is before... Three o'clock, the rehearsal. They said, "Yeah, you're doing it." So I went in, and I conducted the opera with the cast I'd never met before, and it was great. So, what oh. does muscle memory kick
0: in again from from the last time you did Traviata, or um, you no, know, but, the, the brain's an amazing
1: thing? Do you suddenly recall? No, but Traviata is a piece that is very close to me, and it's, it's like I suppose any uh, any great love. Yeah, the you know, uh, an actor would have a. a, a great you know, familiarity with with a Hamlet or a yeah so you know how it goes and you know how you do it but something like Traviata is a special piece that it shows what I started saying you know I, um, it shows what that what that's particular soprano and baritone mainly because they're the leads what they bring to the piece so not all traviatas are the same. Uh, So, and this was the first time uh, like a a young star, Australian soprano. This was her first ever Violetta. I had no idea what she was doing, but we did it together because, as I said, I'm a collaborator. And, you know, she was, you know, 30 metres away. We connected, and it was really good. And she sent me a text saying, I loved your uh, Traviata. It's a, it was a beautiful reading. So obviously whatever I had came out, you know? Yeah. That's good.
0: Um, and a piece like Carmen, which you, you, you've worked on many, many different mm. productions, um, Gayle Edwards, John Bell, Francesco Zambello, um, what do you need to no. go back to basics with every production? No. You have a familiarity with the score, of course, but do, do you wipe... You have to wipe any previous knowledge of other productions, I guess.
1: No, no? I, don't, I don't think so. I, I always just do what I sense and what I see and I work with the people I've got because, you know, Carabin isn't one of those things that no Carabin is the same and Don José is, you know, different each time. Um, I love Carabin, you yeah, know that. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. And... I've done like 120 performances of my own um, and I never get tired of it. Uh, I get tired of listening to it, but when I'm doing it, it's, you know, it's fantastic. Um, No, I don't, because everyone who does it, every orchestra who plays it, plays it differently. So I love all those new conversations you have, unspoken conversations.
0: There are many more interviews in the Stages Archive where we talk to directors, designers and drag performers. Actor-producer Trevor Ashley considers the doubt that has sometimes niggled at him and confesses to what it is that he really craves.
1: I, I have doubted
0: myself a few times, but not often. I think I doubt respect. That's the thing I doubt. I sometimes feel like I'm an industry jerk. Really? Yes. What, what, what makes you think that? Because I'm so ridiculous and because I do drag and because it's not legit and it's not, you know, I don't know, that's how I feel and yet I've been told by many people that that's absolutely not true. But I think that's that's the nagging fear in my head. How does the conductor work with the director in, in creating an opera? Well, sometimes they don't. They don't. Surprise,
1: surprise. But I think that's that's uh, can be the case. There can be conductors. Yeah, a couple of times, um, conductors have just come in and they say, "No, I'm not doing that." What yes. Am I right,
0: right in understanding that the conductor is the is the top of the, the, in, the opera, in opera? opera, uh, yes, yes. yes.
1: That that they is have the, the final case. say. Absolutely. That that is, you know. And I've I've been at um, uh, stage orchestrals. This is just before the dress rehearsal. Where the conductor has stopped and said, "No, you don't do it there I, We did a Francesco Negrin um, uh, Tales of Hoffmann a thousand years ago with Opera Australia, and it looked fantastic it was bizarre. It had this sort of bridge on an angle in a, you know the top of the um near the preceding march and and the soprano and the tenor were up there doing it thing and um, we'd rehearsed it, but the conductor hadn't even. Paid attention during rehearsals or the production, you know, um, presentation, and so he didn't like have to look up there. He just and so he just stopped and he said, "No, no, 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 um, forget that. Just come down to the front of stage and sing it out to me." And once the orchestra is there, the director can't say anything. They can't stop the rehearsal at all. So the singers came down and totally destroyed the production. The same direct, that same conductor, uh, there was uh, a, a new production, well, the only production opera Australia's done ever of, a pedicle of uh, Offenbach. And look, it, th- there wasn't a sequin in the... Um, it was an Indie-Hume production. You know, sort of you know, really sort of colourful, and, but there wasn't a sequin or... It was or,
0: cartoonish, wasn't it? A Hannibal Bear or Warner yeah, Brothers
1: type Yes, or, or, or a yeah. buglebee to be seen um, in the Southern Hemisphere. They were all on these jackets, and it looked fantastic. And uh, who is Nick, 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 Nick Enright did a new translation for, which was sort of Australianish, but brilliant and really witty. The conductor had been sent it 18 months beforehand, hadn't even opened the score to look at it. On the first day of rehearsals, the the, at the ensemble call, the they were singing. He said, oh, no, that shit, you know, literally ripped out that page and threw it. Nick and Rob was was sitting there. Oh, no. No, 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 oh, shit, you know, terrible, blah, blah, blah. Totally destroyed the production. Now, that's a couple of hundred thousand dollars. Yes, yes. And that production was never seen again. That is the power of a conductor. I look, I, 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 I sound as though I'm talking myself up all the time. Even today I went to the director for Wayne and he was up wanting to do a couple of extra things and I said, Look, you don't need to keep stopping and saying, Brian, is that okay? You know. And usually directors have to say maestro and I hate that anyway. Yeah, yeah. And I he said I said, You don't just, just just do it. And if I don't like it, I'll tell you in private, you know. But it, it should be a collaboration. Because you've got to think that the audience are the people who are going to see this thing. It's not about my ego or the director's ego. You can be uh,
0: physically on the go for up to three hours or more. I imagine it's quite an exhausting task to conduct an orchestra. Yes. Are you, How tired are you at the end of the night? Or are, are you not? Are you... I'm
1: exhausted. Invigorated. You are I'm exhausted. exhausted. As I said, you know, an orchestra judges you as you walk onto the podium, whether they think you're good or bad. So that's a big act for me. I'm always really bubbly and full of full of positive aura. And I get on there and they feel as though they're in good hands, even though I'm shitting myself sometimes, you know? How do you prepare for a performance?
0: Do you do exercises? Do you go to the gym? Um, I've never driven past a gym, you know that. <laughs> no, but, but I imagine that, you know, you need to stretch. Would you stretch? And, no, no, I don't. No, nothing about like that,
1: right? Um, I have terrible lower back problems and I, have, I had um, uh, a frozen shoulder three years ago when I was doing an AIDA. I, I do the Ethel Merman um, line of, you've got, to, you've got to be a fucking nun. I do nothing on days of performances, especially when I'm doing the harbor which is every night, I uh, go out and I buy some lunch I I get some, buy some breakfast but I also buy some Asian food for my lunch or dinner and dinner I should say and I have a nap at 12:30 at the latest and I sleep for 90 minutes or two hours. And then I get up and I have, you know, my dinner, and then I go to the theatre, do the show at seven thirty, walk home, go to bed, and that's what you do for a month, All a full month. month. Yeah, yeah. But to, to I, I am v- I am very very um, like my uh, my muscles are really bad, because do you have massage? I used to but I had a bad experience once that I, I actually couldn't get off the massage table. Right. And I was doing a matinee of Carmen in Melbourne and I actually couldn't actually walk. I thought I was going to have to get uh, uh, you know, an ambulance from the massage the tide place to the, the art centre. Right. It was it was really terrible. But
0: yeah. Singers are known for particular repertoire and they fly all around the world performing that repertoire. Uh, are conductors known for specific repertoire or will you take on anything? I'll do anything. You'll do anything for a gig? I, no, I but, will. But so, I mean, Carmen and, and, and yes. uh, various
1: operas. A, a of a lot of um, conductors have four or five pieces they just do endlessly. And they're well known for it and they're engaged around the world to do it. How long would it take you to learn a score?
0: Well, how how long do you spend with the score before? I start?
1: spent all my career basically just doing operas that I had coached. So, someone when I was little said, "You know, Brian, you you don't know an opera until you've coached every role in it, ah, so yes. you can sing every role." Blah 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 yeah, blah. Yeah. Uh, there's something good in that. So, well, it's it's knowing every part of a watch, yeah, every, every part of a car. Yeah, absolutely. So I've had the luxury of only conducting great pieces for 20 years. So I I come to it, I might not have conducted the piece, but I know it inside out. So that's a big, you know, plus. Uh, Last year, I debuted with the State Opera of South Australia with a double bill of Manuel de Faya's La Vida Breve, which I did not know at all. And the second piece was Gianni Schicchi of Puccini, of course, I had coached a couple of roles in it and I'd played it a couple of times and I'd you know, conducted Kiri in doing the Omio babbino Caro aria a million times. Uh, but I basically didn't know that piece and I, it, I was really worried about it. And it took me two weeks of really studying that score before I, I went to Adelaide and well, Adelaide Simph was absolutely brilliant. Um, yeah, it was a good two weeks of... And it's, and it's the first time in 20 years I've really had to l- look at something and learn it. Because I can fake things very well, right. as most conductors do. Yeah. Um, but when you've got a, th- a really good orchestra, they know. Yes. They know when if you're faking.
0: Now, you've been described as exceptionally brilliant Dynamic and fabulous. But I wrote that myself. Oh, did you really? I was going to say, do you take notice of reviews?
1: Everyone takes notice of reviews. So you read your reviews? Even if they... Yeah. Because most of the time, uh, there's there's one reviewer who absolutely hates me, uh, which is just stupid. And it's because I was part of him being sacked from his previous job. So, you know... um, The snake bit. Yeah. And the... The other reviews frequently conductors aren't even mentioned. You know, operas happen by themselves. You would think, wouldn't you? Yeah. Mm. Um, because look, reviewers are reviewers, you know, they. It's one person's opinion. And, it. A, and in the old days, reviewers actually did have knowledge. Yes. But these days, they're, they're just paid people who go to see a show and they, they write what the story is, and perhaps one or two. Things they, what colours they saw on stage, and nothing about the piece itself or the standard.
0: Now you're also an author with uh, Losing the Plot in Opera, which is uh, a terrific a collect- bestseller, terrific hmm. a bestseller, and a It was of- it was bestseller for two years, two oh. Christmases in the UK. Um, now through your record label Desiree Records, you've been preserving um, and sharing live recordings of some concerts. Of our great, yeah. our great, yeah. um, our great voices. That's the responsibility that you must take very seriously, uh, preserving those voices or getting them
1: out there for, for listeners to, uh, to hear. For anyone who is even slightly interested in it, yeah, it's really important because we learn from the past, or we should, in any art form, you know. Um, uh, dancers should know all the great dancers of the past at Ballet, least 100 years. Ballet Russe. Absolutely. Yep. He was a lovely dancer, ballet. He was great. And um, uh, music theatre people should know the great you know, performers of because there were they were music musicals before Les Mis. Did you know that? I did know that. I did know that. And with opera, you just don't read what's on the page and sing it, yeah, or play it. Um, there are traditions um there are ways to sing things and voices change musical styles change um and as i said you know i was brought up well my parents were much much older than i suppose my parents were like the age of most people's grandparents when you know and my my grandmother was basically old enough to be my mother's grandmother as well you know um and so I was, I was always surrounded by old people. Old people carry history with them. Uh, and whenever I could, when I, I still do it. I, I somehow have this ability to hone out <clears throat> interesting old people, and you just have coffee with them. And from that, <clears throat> I know how to do things. I know how to shape a phrase. I, know, I, I remember I was doing Rigoletto with the Opera House here. And our boss, who's now dead, Richard Hickox, came, he said, Oh, right, had a big start. He said, Oh, was marvelous, marvelous And he said, You know, I've never heard the Act, act three like that, the end of the duet, you know how it's built up here. And then, uh, then then when she finished the high note, you know, it went half tempo, then accelerated and blah blah blah. I said, But that's what they always used to do in the nineteen forties, the Met, you know, that, that's theatre. You know it's it's not written on the page that way, but that's How you make it sound great, and all those old singers who, when I first started with the opera company, there were all those people who were quite old. They'd be character actors, and I loved them. And throughout throughout history, um, singers, the great singers, have never been recorded. So, so um, you've done people like Bob Allman, but, but and celib- Grant. celebrity singers right. um, are recorded, yep. and they're not necessarily the greatest. Yeah, um, fortunately, Maria Callas was—you know, she was—you know, she was pretty good. She was the greatest of them all. Um, but there are a whole group of Australian singers because I love our own um, um, history, uh, and I, twenty-five years ago or more, I contacted. 30, 40 old singers and it was when, when compact discs first came out and I found out that you could actually record on them yeah. so I, I said look if you've got any old cassettes or reel-to-reel tapes give them to me and I'll transfer them to compact disc, because Foolishly, I thought the compact discs were a good medium that wouldn't corrode, and They'd of course, they do, for you know. Years, yeah. yeah, and of course, I, I did put paper labels on them, so that destroyed them anyway. <laughs> but I've I got all I've preserved all that stuff. So I contacted all those people, and, and within the first six months, I don't know, 15 of them had died. But before they died, they contacted me and said, There was one woman, a lovely, a lovely old soprano called Rosalind Keane and she said, look, Brian, um, I've just got your letter and I've just told my son to give you um, all my ABC master tapes that she's stolen and everything and all my music, blah, blah, blah. And she was the first servinetta in Australia. She was on Bobby Bloom's Sound of Music. Right. Uh, So I have all those things, the only known recordings of most people. And there was an old soprano called Elizabeth Fretwell, who was a major singer, And, um, in fact, only a couple of months ago, an old baritone said that, at Sadler's Wells, they said that when Betty Fretwell left, they were never able to replace her because she could sing anything, and brilliantly. Um, She sent me a, you know, she called, I think it was, and she said, look, Brian, I don't have any recordings of myself. So... Within six months, I'd sent her like 25 complete recordings of her in opera and blah, blah, blah. And so that was also to pass on to her family so the grandchildren could hear what, what you know, Nana sounded like. Anyway, so cutting this very long story, not too short, um, I eventually have started this uh, series called Great Australian Voices. Um, and it's, it has been dedicated to it. A single singer, each each one of them, three three CDs, with a, like a forty page booklet that has absolute accuracy in it, with details of dates, what they sang, who they sang with, exactly where they sang, and basically recordings of live performances or unreleased studio recordings. Everything is world first, premiere, you know, commercial release. And um, it documents... You know, most of these singers had, like, 40-year careers, which is unheard of these days. And, um, like, from 1950 to 1990 and whatever. And um, I've done seven of those Are so Are they... Far. They're available online? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Through, it's international. through Desiree Records or...? Well, no, just online no. Um, from, from, you know, uh, like... Fish, fine music and things. But the series um, is called Great Australian Voices. Great Australian Voices. And, uh, you know, I'm really proud of them because in a be. hundred years' time, hopefully, if anyone is even slightly interested, they can look at these things and know exactly who that singer was, what they sounded like without studio knobs being, you know, yep. uh, twisted. Yep. Um, for rare photographs of these people and also what their favourite roles were and why. And even the colours of the artwork are the favourite colour of the of the um, performer. Who were your musical heroes?
0: Musical as in performers. Well, performers, yes, of, of, of any um,
1: art form. Uh, it could be opera, music theatre, um, oh, I, I instrumentalists. Have, there are a handful of singers I really liked um, and loved and learned from, uh, certainly Carlas, of course. Of course, I never saw her. Um, and fortunately, I've, I've met and actually more than befriended the great idols of, um, of my childhood. Even Kenneth McKellar, you know, my first love. I met him twice, I went to see him twice, but, you know, he just... I, and he, he treated me as I was just a really nice fan. But then I've become very friendly with his daughter, and his daughter has given me lots of his stuff and his, you know, his beer thing, whatever it's called, you know. Tankard or... Tankard, yeah, with his name engraved on it, which I lo- you know, I don't drink, but, you know, it's fantastic. Great. I love that sort of shit. And um, there's only one of my favourite singers, and she's still alive, who I have never met and I've written her two letters and years ago um, uh, an Australian soprano came to work with me as a teenager and I said, look, if you go to Italy there's this American woman who married an Italian and she is the last of the great singers the last of the great school singers her name is Lella Cuberli. and this was Jessica Pratt if you've heard of her and when the next thing well 15 years later, um, someone told me, oh, and Jessica Pratt's been working with Lella Kuberly. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah. But I've, I've never had any contact with Lella. Although I listened to her and she, it is the most beautiful, stylish, charismatic singing you would ever hear. And she has the same birthday as me. Much older, of course, but same birthday, and whatever. But yeah, the I admire people who are really good, who are honest. I, I don't like any sort of affectation. Yeah, yeah? I, lo- I love quirky people, as you do. Yeah? Well, I think that's being country boys. Could be. Yeah. It's called looking in the mirror. <laughs> Brian, what do you love most about your job? I love using the piece, the masterpiece that I'm um, conducting or work, you know playing as a vehicle to show what I have, to show my personality. Even though I don't try to, yeah. it comes out. People sense my per- persona through the music. You have a, a big persona. Are you a shy person? I am. Yeah. I, I, most most performers a are.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you turn it on whenever there's uh, yeah. an audience to be had. Well, I hope it all goes well this year. I'm sure it will. I'm
1: sure it will. And of course, you know, it's, it's a great thing. And, you know, we're, it's a great event. But the orchestra's great. The singers are great. And I think the production's going to look great as well. Set in 1968. A very I good year. The, I don't know the specific date um, in 1968. But, um, yeah. yeah. And it's got some really interesting ideas in it. And, of course, it's Bohem. Full stop. What's Not to Love. Yeah. It's a fantastic piece.
0: Maestro Brian Castle's Onion, thank you Bri, for... Bri. Uh, <laughs> Bri, Bri, B, thanks but, for uh, for chatting to me on stages. Um, I'm sure audiences, well, audiences, your audiences, my audience, have got a lot out of um, hearing your,
1: uh, It's been an absolute, an absolute delight absolute delight.
0: Don't forget to check out Brian's series of Great Australian Voices from Desiree Records. Artists such as Jennifer Eddy, Joan Sutherland, June Bronhill, Marie Collier, Robert Allman and Geraldine Turner. Available online through all fine music stores.